perfect time to explore Guy Fox and some of the other famous rebels and rebellions. And it's also the month of Remembrance Day, Veterans Day, and Thanksgiving. So let's take a look at some of the Thanksgiving services in history. Medieval life was shaped by a strong belief that God cared for his people. And since a victory in battle and other national successes were an example of God's goodness and blessings, national victories were often celebrated by services of thanksgiving. Today is the perfect time to talk about one of the most famous early celebrations in 1588, marking the victory over the Spanish Armada. This is often called the defining moment of Queen Elizabeth I's reign, the pinnacle of her success as queen ruling on her own. She defeated the male leaders who challenged her, specifically her former brother-in-law and former suitor, Philip of Spain. The English had successfully been resisting the dominance of Spain for years. Sir Francis Drake had been awarded a knighthood by the Queen in 1581 in recognition of his exploration and naval exploits. The Spanish reportedly referred to him as El Drake and thought of him as a pirate. King Philip offered a rich reward for Drake's capture or death. In 1587, Drake set out from Plymouth to attack the Spanish fleet in southern Spain. The incident, which caused the Armada to delay its launch by a year, became known as Drake, quote, singeing the beard of the King of Spain. The political and economic turmoil that raged between England and Spain helped propel Philip into launching the Armada. The fleet of about 150 Habsburg-sponsored ships contained nearly 20,000 men, the largest fleet ever seen in Europe at that time, and considered by many, including Philip himself, to be invincible. Philip called it a holy war to save the soul of England, it being his duty to bring England back into the fold of Catholicism. After the execution of Mary, Queen of Scots, Philip was determined to end the religious tension between the two countries by invasion. Philip had the strong support of Pope Sixtus V for his, quote, enterprise of England. The coalition of Catholic European powers were confident of victory against the English. The Armada set sail on the 19th of May, 1588. The stage was set. Under the leadership of Drake and Lord Charles Howard, the English Royal Navy aimed to crush the ambition of Philip and his allies. The Spanish Armada reached the southern coast of England on the 19th of July. A couple of days later, the English Navy began bombarding the ships from a distance. On the 29th of July, the English sent eight burning ships into the Spanish fleet that was clustered in the channel. The English guns provided enough firepower, and the Armada was forced to retreat. Worse was to come for the Spanish ships, as storms battered the fleet. The Armada ships were damaged and floundered at sea, and by the time the remaining ships got back to Spain, half the fleet and about 15,000 men had been lost. If it had been a holy war, as Philip proclaimed, God seemed to be on England's side. 
and England was ready to celebrate. Despite a sense of victory, the war between England and Spain was not over at this point. In fact, it would not completely end until James I came to the throne and established peace. Still, that victory in 1588 was an important moment and a signal that England was ready to take its place on the world stage. On the 20th of August, 1588, St. Paul's Cathedral was the site of a Thanksgiving service. The purpose was to give thanks to God for his help in defeating that so-called invincible armada. Drake and Howard certainly deserve credit, but the weather also played a huge role, with many crediting England's victory to the, quote, Protestant wind. Philip alluded to this, attributing his defeat to, quote, the wind and waves. Queen Elizabeth I led all the national celebrations and managed to combine the reality of the weather's role in the victory and the important narrative that God was on the side of right, and that meant the side of England. She ordered a special commemorative medal for the victory, inscribed with the words, God blew and they were scattered. After everything she had survived, Elizabeth had reason to believe God had scattered the Spanish fleet. Despite the sense of celebration, there was still an ongoing threat, and the war with Spain continued. In mid-October, a proclamation delayed Parliament's planned opening, which was set for early November. As time passed, however, the threat of invasion seemed to lessen. On the 3rd of November, the council decided that the 9th of November would be a national day of Thanksgiving. That celebration was rescheduled to the day of the Queen's accession, the 17th of November. A delivery of the sermon was postponed again until the 19th of November, when the government issued a special supplement called a Psalm of Thanksgiving, not unmeet for this present time, to be said or sung in churches. Ultimately, it turns out that 433 years ago today, the 24th of November, the Queen processed from Somerset House to St. Paul's Cathedral to officially give thanks for England's victory. According to John Stowe's record, she came in a chariot throne, accompanied by large groups of supporters and bands and celebrators. The Queen was greeted by the Dean of St. Paul's and the Bishop of London, who escorted her to a private stall so she could hear the service. Camden's account mentions the Queen's rewarding the military leaders for their service. The narratives of the Armada victory flooded London. Between the 29th of June and the 27th of November, 27 ballads dealing with the Armada were registered and published. Sadly, only four survive in their printed form. Despite the Queen's presence in these official celebrations, her personal life had suffered a terrible blow. Just weeks after he had accompanied her at the delivery of her famous speech at Tilbury, her beloved BFF, Robert Dudley, fell ill and died. She shut herself away from everyone and refused to emerge until Cecil broke down the door and brought her out. She kept the letter he had sent just six days before his death, writing, quote, his last letter on it and placing it in a treasure box by her bed. So that Thanksgiving service must have been bittersweet, even as it represented one of the greatest moments of her reign. 
The tradition of celebrating military victory with a Thanksgiving service continued into the Stuart reign. By the 1620s, the various parts of government had developed their own religious patterns. The monarch worshipping at the Chapel Royal at Whitehall, the House of Lords worshipping at Westminster Abbey, and the Commons worshipping at St. Margaret's. There were several services of Thanksgiving held after the restoration of the monarchy with Charles II. But after the Great Fire of London in 1666, St. Paul's Cathedral wasn't available for any worship services until its rebuilding was complete almost 30 years later in 1697. When Queen Anne came to the throne, military celebrations changed. The decision to hold a Thanksgiving service belonged to the monarch, and the ceremonies were organized by the Lord Chamberlain. After the victory of Vigo in October 1702, Queen Anne announced a public Thanksgiving service to be held at St. Paul's Cathedral, the first state Thanksgiving service since Elizabeth's back in 1588. The committee of the council decided that St. Paul's would represent the Queen's Chapel Royal for that Thanksgiving service. The Queen was in charge. She chose the anthem, she oversaw the choice of texts, and she selected some of the men who would preach. A very religious woman, Anne was interested in the details of the ceremony. On the 12th of November, 1702, Queen Anne led the service at St. Paul's. She liked the image of herself as a wartime leader, which provided a way for her to feel powerful even as the power of the monarchy was waning. She was devoted to religion and to her role as head of the church, and she had a strong sense of spiritual and moral authority. In addition, the wartime element of the service allowed her to take on the role as a symbol of national unity. The ceremony was a chance to encourage patriotism linked to the queen herself. It was a successful tool, and Anne and the government decided to repeat it. Six more Thanksgiving services were held at St. Paul's over the next few years, culminating in a grand ceremony in 1708. Some scholars believe these were intended to emulate Elizabeth's Armada service. Interesting, like Elizabeth, Anne faced a personal sadness prior to the 1708 Thanksgiving service. By then, Anne's relationship with her best friend, Sarah Churchill, had deteriorated. They disagreed about politics, with Anne leaning toward the Tories and Sarah strongly supporting the Whigs. In addition, Anne was developing a friendship with Abigail Masham, and Sarah was jealous. As the Queen was preparing for the Thanksgiving ceremony, she and Sarah started arguing about the jewels that Sarah wanted the Queen to wear. The argument continued as they traveled. When the Queen got out of her carriage at St. Paul's in front of the crowds, Sarah loudly shouted at her to be quiet. The public display display of such disrespect for the queen, especially at such an important occasion, was a difficult way to begin the Thanksgiving service. The queen carried on, taking the chair of state in full view of the congregation. Although she usually worshipped in a private chapel, at the Thanksgiving service, her religious devotion was on full display. The size of St. Paul's allowed the service to be on a grand scale, presenting an opportunity to create an image of the whole nation gathered together in gratitude. The presence of the queen in the service was a powerful way to communicate her will to the country, and the sermons preached there were also published and distributed. 
A few years later, in 1713, the Thanksgiving service held at St. Paul's was a particularly significant event in terms of its political importance. The Queen had ordered the end of Thanksgiving services to celebrate military success as she became opposed to the continuation of the war. Queen Anne took a few specific steps in helping design the ceremony that reflected her goals for herself and her role. For example, she chose George Frederick Handel to write the music. Choosing a German composer was the Queen's effort to connect herself to Hanover, which was her way of communicating her support for the Hanoverian succession. Parliament had selected the Hanoverian line to succeed after Anne's only surviving son died, and she used this service to connect England and the English people to the idea of Hanoverians. There were several public rehearsals, so people who would not be able to attend the actual Thanksgiving service could have a chance to experience the music and the parts of the ceremony. This was a conscious choice on Anne's part to help endorse and lay the foundation to a new dynasty. We know in hindsight that particularly the first two Hanoverian kings were not necessarily a great success, but even so, the Queen's clear support of their succession helped to avoid the battles over the throne that had plagued the country in the past. Even though the Queen was ultimately unable to attend in person because of her ill health, she arranged for the crown to have a positive image prominently placed. The ceremony went forward with a royal chair of state and all the trappings of the Queen and crown. This allowed the sermon to resonate strongly the place of the monarchy, even without Anne being there. So the service of Thanksgiving had changed into something new. Rather than a way of celebrating a military victory, it celebrated peace, both an external peace with the Treaty of Utrecht and the end of the war and eternal peace, internal peace with the presentation of a united front of monarch and parliament preparing for the succession of the Hanoverian line. Anne was able to reassert her own position as queen and to prepare her people for the peaceful transition to the next dynasty and into the future. It was a call for national unity, and it gave the people an opportunity to be part of a call for loyalty and peace. This was a successful way of celebrating the monarchy, accepting the role of parliament in shaping the monarchy, and moving the nation forward together. As the examiner said at the time, Anne and her supporters used religion and this service to promote international peace and, quote, cultivate and promote peace at home. So the very notion of a Thanksgiving service had evolved dramatically from that early Armada celebration in 1588 to this one in 1713. The use of Thanksgiving services to give thanks for more than military victories continued strongly through the years. In fact, nearly 200 years later, Queen Victoria held a family Thanksgiving service to begin her her 1897 Jubilee celebrations. Then there was a public service at St. Paul's Cathedral a couple of days later on the 22nd of June. The Queen much like Elizabeth I all those years ago, was in mourning, continually in mourning, even though Albert had died quite a while ago in 1861. 
Queen Victoria's health was declining as she celebrated becoming the longest reigning monarch at that time. As a result, she was unable to get up all those stairs to get into St. Paul's, so she remained in her carriage. The clergy came outside to her, and the Thanksgiving service was actually held outside the building. Victoria described the scene as most impressive, and it certainly was. This was the first, and for many years the only, time a monarch had achieved the landmark of a reign of 60 years. But it would not be the last. Many of us can remember the spectacular events associated with the Queen's Diamond Jubilee back in 2012. The events included a Thames River pageant with members of the royal family sailing along the Thames on board the Spirit of Chartwell Royal Barge. In total, a thousand boats participated in the flotilla. Later, a concert was held at Buckingham Palace. Performers demonstrated Queen Elizabeth II's understanding of the need to appeal to a wide audience and included Kylie Minogue, Robbie Williams, Sir Elton John, Shirley Bassey, Jesse J., Sir Tom Jones, Madness, Stevie Wonder, Sir Cliff Richard, and Sir Paul McCartney. The concert attracted 12,000 ticket holders and thousands more lining the mall. After the concert, fireworks lit up the sky at the palace. Perhaps less dramatic, but no less important, the Diamond Jubilee celebration included the now traditional Thanksgiving service at St. Paul's Cathedral. The service of Thanksgiving was held on the 5th of June. Senior members of the royal family attended the service, including Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II, the Duke and Duchess of Cornwall, the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge, and Prince Harry. Unfortunately, the Duke of Edinburgh was hospitalized and missed the Thanksgiving service as well as other parts of the celebration. But the rest of the family participated in the service that honored the Queen. The Archbishop of Canterbury praised the Queen for dedicating herself to the service of her people over all these years. When she left, the royal family was greeted with cheers and spontaneous chants of God save the Queen. And now, 10 years later, we are preparing for another jubilee. Next year, Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II will become the first British monarch ever to celebrate a platinum jubilee. She came to the throne on the 6th of February, 1952 at age 25. So February of next year will mark an unprecedented milestone in royal history, one that might never be repeated, and certainly not anytime soon. A service of Thanksgiving will be held on the 3rd of June as part of a four-day celebration. Of course, it will be held at the traditional spot of St. Paul's Cathedral. Although no details about the Thanksgiving service have been announced yet, it's certain that members of the clergy and the public will once again express appreciation to the Queen for her years of service. This year's service will be especially poignant with the recent passing of the Queen's beloved husband, the Duke of Edinburgh. But like Elizabeth I, Queen Anne, and Queen Victoria, 
I'm sure Her Majesty the Queen will provide the symbol of a monarchy that has in so many ways changed over the years and yet has managed to not only survive, but continue to be celebrated by millions. And you may have heard the Tower just announced that it will be filling the moat with millions of colorful flowers in celebration of the Queen. It's clear she holds a special place in many hearts. The changing monarchy is much like the changing royal services of Thanksgiving. From the first Elizabeth to the second, much has changed. But appreciation for queen and country continues to inspire. And that's our time travel through some famous services of Thanksgiving. And thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for your support of this podcast. When I started a little more than a year ago, I never imagined so many people would be joining me on this journey. I'm so grateful for you for listening, for rating the podcast, and for sending your very, very kind comments. And a special big thanks to all of you who have joined the Royals, Rebels, and Romantics patron family. And a special welcome to our newest member, Lee Battaglioli. Happy Thanksgiving and very best wishes. Coming next month, some really fun guests will join us as we create some festive holiday episodes. Till then, stay safe and let's keep shaking up history together. <music>